This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Monday the 30th of January and with me today I have Mark Cutler. Mark is CEO of Aimlisted Vanel. Vanel is the largest and most diverse geotechnical and ground engineering contractor. Mark has over 30 years of experience in the infrastructure and construction sectors. Mark has held leadership roles with the UK major contracting businesses including Carillion, Morgan Sinnell and Balford Beatty. Mark joined Vanel in late 2018. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Can we start with what first attracted you to the construction sector? Yes. Often, of course, these things happen um, more by um, accident than design. I, I, um, I, th- I think the first big decision for me was deciding to do civil engineering at university. I went to, um, so I'm from Cornwall. Um, I was brought up in Newquay in Cornwall, um, single parent family. Um, we didn't really know much about life outside of Cornwall, to be honest, and, and my school life was spent mainly on the golf course um or on the beach and um um but i was i i was in a good set of um friends with some good teachers at the local comprehensive school who got me into physics and chemistry and maths and and then civil engineering felt like a really good fit between those things and and a more practical sort of outlook and i was lucky enough to be um successful in applying for the best um, university in the UK um, and, and amongst the best in the world for civil engineering, which is Imperial College London. Um, so I went to Imperial, um, studied civil engineering. That attracted um, some big companies to come and you know meet undergraduates to enrol them in their sponsorship programmes. And I was um, asked to do this by Tarmac Construction of Wolverhampton. Um, and um, uh, that's, a long because... way from, that's a long way from Newquay. Yeah, I know. But mainly because um, they were willing to uh, give you some money uh, each term to bolster what was for me a um, a grant from the local authority, and and um, um, and and guarantee summer work, um, you know, to gain experience all around the country. And I, I went for it and really enjoyed it. And that was really like it is for many people a taster during the summer holidays while you're a student to see if it um, is something that excites you. And and I I found it was really um, I was landing on my feet doing that sort of thing. So I, I found to my surprise that even by the time I graduated and started work properly in 1990, I was already identified as someone that was worth sort of, you know, keeping an eye on. Um, so I then went to and I went into Tarmac. Tarmac was with John Lang in those days, one of the biggest construction companies in the country. Um, both names now long gone, of course. And I went and um, I was talking to an investor earlier. Um, I worked on the um, bypass around Petersfield and Liphook on the A3, 
which some of you might know, and uh, cut my teeth there for a couple of years before being invited to go to America to do my design secondment, which doesn't happen uh, very often. Um, but we went. I went over to Kansas City with a sister sister company, and um, really, then my my passion for the industry was was set, and um, I I carried on in tarmac and came back and did major projects for for several years after that. And then from tarmac. Well, so tarmac um, was I really enjoyed tarmac. That's probably where my formative years and my my attitudes and sort of some of my learnings were were first set. Um, I, I so I worked on. Um, big highways projects. I worked on the M40 uh, construction. I worked on the Jubilee line extension at, at Canary Wharf, uh, Manchester Airport second runway and a big power station um, and then went into the rail sector and started uh, getting involved in, into more senior leadership roles on the West Coast um, route upgrade, which was the, the programme, unfortunately, that, that was associated with the demise of rail track. Um, but uh, the, work, the projects I worked on did very well. Um, uh, and Tarmac became Carillion. Um, Carillion um, was a great company too in those early years, but I found that I needed to spread my wings to take bigger roles. So I was asked to run the infrastructure side of Morgan Sindel, which was called Morganest in those days, which is a sort of opportunity I didn't feel I would would um, easily be offered in, in Carillion. And so I spent three, four, five years in, in Morgan Sindel. Um, and then um, four years as a chief executive of Bar Hale after that, uh, a water focused infrastructure business, family owned, Irish family owned, uh, working closely with the chairman. And then into Balfour Beatty, where I, um, I did a couple of things. I ran the regional businesses in the UK in a time of desperate pressure. This was the time when Carillion were trying to buy Balfour mm-hmm. Beatty, you might remember, um, yeah. which seems very strange now looking back. Um, but Balfour Beatty went through a really difficult period and then Leo Quinn came in soon after and I ended up after a, a couple of you know tweaks I ended up uh, running the high speed two venture with Vinci which was very successful actually um, and then and then having won those I was I was asked to come to Van L, which um, I don't feel was such a difficult decision actually so that 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 brings you up to date. And maybe this is a good opportunity then. Would you like to introduce Vanel? Yeah, so Vanel is, as you said in the introduction, the UK's biggest ground engineering contractor, um, AIM listed, uh, floated in 2016, had had some teething problems really as a public company. I think it's fair to say set quite ambitious forecasts, you know, with the IPO and and failed to meet those. And, you know, brought a whole lot of um, pressure on ourselves in terms of our um, ability to you know retain the confidence of investors and and actually customers it turned out so i joined after a couple of years of turmoil boardroom turmoil and investor sort of frustration in late 2018 as part of much needed change and we are still the biggest in the uk in fact we became the biggest in the uk around about 2017 18 um, and we've consolidated that position very well. But what we've really been doing is modernising the business, transforming the culture, transforming the performance, transforming the market position um, to better equip ourselves for long term, sustainable, confident growth and all of the things that go with that, not least um, strengthening the balance sheet, widening our customer base, changing the management team, changing the whole whole board, actually. 
um, the shareholder register has changed as well into a very impressive set of institutional holders and the business is on a very confident footing going forward. And then what does a ground engineer do? So yeah, forgive me, uh, it's easy to perhaps slip over things like that. So ground engineering is foundations and piling and piling is the, the construction of deep supports for buildings and structures that take the load from um, the, 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 the buildings down to stronger ground below um, and, and, and bypassing effectively the weaker ground that often sits in the top you know, 6, 10, 15 metres of, of the UK's geology. And you don't need it for lightweight structures. Often houses, for example, are built just on, you know, shallow trenches. Uh, but most buildings um, above three, four storeys will usually require piling of some type or, or other techniques that improve the ground or strengthen the ground. And of course, there are many, many different ways of doing this. Um, it's a whole field of civil engineering in itself, geotechnical engineering, fascinating aspect of what I studied, actually. Um, and it's a, 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 an area of the industry that's full of passionate people that specialise in this area. Um, and, and so and we, are, we are specialist civil engineering contractors focused on everything in the ground, which is called geotechnical or ground engineering. And that's the key, isn't it? Because it's highly specialised. Yeah, it's highly specialised. You need... You need a you need very good engineers uh, b you need um, uh, the construction techniques um, and the design and the design capability but but most importantly the the construction techniques um, born out of experience and capability with um, expensive rigs quite big capital investment in in the rigs and um, just as important is the investment and the deployment of specialist skilled operators, engineers that, that go out and construct these projects. And we have 120 rigs that we own, uh, the biggest fleet in the UK by some distance, and 660 employees, all of whom are direct. We don't subcontract anything or use agency um, sort of arrangements. Um, so it's very much a model of self-delivery using our own plant equipment and people. Uh, and we go all over the UK working on everything from the, the the near shore you know we do work we do get our feet wet sometimes um, into the into the mountains on wind farms and right across the built environment so north of Scotland to the southwest and across housing building and infrastructure so we're very diverse we have hundreds of customers we deliver over a thousand projects a year we're completely independent which means that we don't have a parent company, construction company, of course, because we're we're independently listed, which means that we're highly competitive. You know, we don't get sort of awarded or given work in-house by anybody. We we compete for everything that we win on our own merits. Very busy business, short cycle projects quite often. Typical project duration might be two or three weeks, um, but sometimes we'll be on particular programs for a couple of years. There's quite a variety of different things that we do, but a very, very busy, fast moving business with a lot of project um, throughput. And also some very large infrastructure projects, I mean, government financed infrastructure projects, which I guess should give you some defensiveness against any form of the residential construction cycle. Or any commercial residential yes. construction side? Yes. So what one of the most appealing uh, elements are about Van Al, um, um from the perspective of investors is our exposure to the infrastructure sector, which gives you those long 
short-term opportunities that you've just mentioned. Now, uh, as an organisation, we were not necessarily positioned for all of those opportunities the way we are now today. But you're right, they, they will often give us much longer visibility. They also take a lot longer to procure and mobilise, let me say, um, compared to the shorter um, horizon that goes with house building or, or building or the building markets. The diversity is actually very important for us because we can maximise utilisation by moving rigs around, moving people around for sometimes, you know, projects that might come in at very short notice or other times, you know, ring fencing them for, for longer projects. So we are quite unique in that we're exposed across our, let's say, 150 million turnover this year, um, almost equally across those three sectors. There's nobody else in our market that that, that does that. Um, and we can then sort of, as I say, maximise our utilisation workload planning across across those different cycles of project delivery. And then being so specialist, is there is there much competition? Obviously, you mentioned the in-house piling divisions, but any other competitors? Yeah, well, it is actually a fragmented market with lots of piling contractors. So one of the features of the industry is it, it probably needs a bit of consolidation. Um, there are an awful lot of smaller family-owned um, businesses who might be might have a couple of rigs and are successful in in local regions but the barriers to entry are rising all the time with inflation and you know insurance costs however our biggest our biggest rivals you know of our, of our top six um competitors four of four of them well let's take the top six uh four four will be owned by tier one construction companies and our other big rival is another PLC uh, Keller, who some of you will know, who operate in the UK with a with a strong UK arm. They're they're the only other independent that we we regularly compete against. Is it is it a fragmented market with the opportunity for consolidation? Is that a potential M&A strategy for you, or would you rather just buy new rigs and and take the business away from from those smaller players? There is a consolidation opportunity. Absolutely. Is it um, attractive enough for us? to you know buy up smaller piling contractors i'm not so convinced so we we consider bolt-on acquisitions regularly we've looked at half a dozen over the last 12 months quite closely um really we only are interested in something that that fills a niche gap in our capabilities or accelerates our growth in an area where we wouldn't be able to do it organically um, so buying up smaller piling contractors when we've already got lots of rigs the same and you know we could just buy another one isn't probably an area we would we would acquire um, and we do have a good track record of organically developing new services and we've done this in the last few years in ground improvement where we've created from from scratch um, a 10 million revenue ground improvement team that does something called vibrostone columns and also rigid inclusions these sound like very bizarre terms i'm sure but they're important to us um, and this is a way of strengthening the ground without going quite as far as piling, um, uh, which sits very well in some of our sort of warehouse um, operations where the loadings are not always so high, you know, on the slabs and things. Um, so it's a, it's a very, and also in housing, it's a very useful capability. And we've done that. We've done that completely organically. We've got the engineering capability to to 
plug some of our gaps, but we're always interested in in the right type of bolt-on and the Screwfast acquisition that we made in April 2021 is a great example where we weighed up, could we do this organically? How long would it take? How difficult would the relevant accreditations and track record be to, to achieve? And we felt it was it was, you know, it was an obvious acquisition area given the opportunity to buy Screwfast at the time. Well, that's exactly what a CEO should be doing, is it allocation of allocation of capital? And yeah. work work out if it's cheaper to buy it or um yeah. or, or or better to do it yourself. And then I guess also um those frag- the fragmented market, it must be very difficult for those smaller players to even engage with government or national contracts. Yes, I think it is. You would see the smaller players active in the regional building markets, um, maybe with some house builders, um, not necessarily the biggest house builders always, maybe some of the regional house builders. In infrastructure, it would be quite rare to see, seem to see the same presence on, on government funded infrastructure programmes. Yeah. Now, Many will remember that the UK contracting sector has, you know, is full of ghosts, and uh, there's been a lot of focus on on margins. How do you, how are your contracts priced, and how do you protect that that sacred margin? Nick, this is one of the other areas where we are investable because we are not exposed to the same construction sector risks that you would associate with big contractors. And I've mentioned Carillion earlier but we could make a list of others that may still be in business, but you know can often give shocks and, and, and disappointments from long running contracts or the way profits have been recognized um, or losses have, been, have, have perhaps not been transparent. So the difference with us is, first of all, we're a specialist contractor, so our margins are much higher, um, which gives you some room for uh, error. We don't get everything perfectly right, but we, you know, we, we, we rarely lose money on a project. Secondly, our projects are usually short duration and we are very clear about the risk that we will take on a project when we price it. Um, You might be surprised to hear we don't take ground risk. So if the ground is different than what we have priced and we're given information usually when we price a job, then that is not a risk that we retain because we don't, you know, we can't see what's under the ground any better than anyone else until we start piling. Now we have a ground investigation arm that can help customers with that service, but that doesn't mean that we can take that risk when we when we take on a piling contract. So we, our risk profile is very clear. Our projects are short short cycle, um, and what that means is contract liabilities and losses and delays can't easily build up to become of a material scale that would affect the the performance of the overall business. Unless we're taking on bigger contracts where we get the risk profile incorrect. That can happen from time to time in any organisation, but we've got to, we have a very sensitive risk management process around our bigger jobs, which we will tend to do in our general piling division to make sure that we don't, um, you know, we don't repeat the mistakes of, of bigger tier one contractors when it comes to those sorts of things. Um, and then what? Well, then we finish quickly, so we're getting paid quickly. We're not waiting for a long time for our cash to be locked up in disputes. We're final accounting regularly. Um, um, and we have the ability, if we're in dispute, to resolve it through the fact that we need to provide warranties. Um, and usually the contractor needs to build on the piling that we've done. So if we have a bad debt or a risk with the solvency of a customer, usually um, you know somebody needs our warranties and wants to proceed with the project. So it, it's a relatively low risk, not completely risk-free, but a relatively low risk part of the construction industry 
you know, for all of those reasons. Then how much visibility or, or order book growth can do, does the business have? So we, we typically have visibility of 12 months or so of the projects coming through. Our order book, though, which which we um, are quite um, strict on, only only accounts for secured contracted work um, is typically and always has been three to four months. But we have projects moving into our order book all the time. That's how we work. We work on a on a on a fast moving. We're pricing a lot of work all the time. There's you know hundreds of projects being priced at any one point of time in this organisation, and we will win our well, more than our fair share typically. Um, and then it goes into the order book and, and we keep going. The frameworks that I mentioned earlier in infrastructure, which are such such an important part of our underlying activity now and going forward. Um, and bear in mind we've we've never had um, framework revenues and framework visibility in the in the company in the past. It's taken us two or three years to develop these positions in highways and rail in particular, hopefully going forward power should give us about 30% of our revenues coming through frameworks. We won't book those into the order book until the specific works orders are called off. Usually such work is allocated rather than priced competitively. So it's a, a much better model, but we do wait until we still got the works order for each job. Um, and then uh, going forward though, we have two, three, four years of visibility um, in some cases that we've never had in the past, albeit we don't know for certain exactly when it will finally delivered, but we know it's being done by us within this broad time frame. There's obviously been a lot of press comment and, and general market comment about inflation and input costs. How have you managed to, to navigate that rather choppy sea over the last 12 months or so? And, and have you seen any, any respite in that? So um, it, it probably going back to your last point about how we price work is, is how we cope with the commercial risk of um, inflation to materials and 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 wages for that matter, which have been a, a particular sort of challenge for us over the last 12, 18 months. So we we deal with it by unfortunately having to accept the price increases that come through for the marketplace and still paying our people, you know, what we can afford to retain them because it's a hot market and we do pay well. And uh, we and we've not we've not kind of uh, gone backwards by going for agency labour or zero hours working or anything like that. We pay all of our people as full time employees, but we price it into our jobs. And because we're pricing work every day, you know, for projects that 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 might be starting in the next few weeks or next few months, we have that ability to, you know, continuously adjust our pricing and get that feedback from the, uh, you know, the overhead and cost base to you know, uh, adjust as needed. And what we do where we've got a particular risk around you know, rapid or short-term price increases is we hold our prices open for materials rates until the date that we actually agree that the contract will be awarded and then the customer and ourselves will, will reconcile and agree what the, what the materials prices are at that point in time. And then we can get them fixed for the length of the job. And most customers have become conditioned and, and agreeable to that approach because you know that is unfortunately what we have to do and that that works for us so we don't we don't get caught in the middle that way which is one of the problems for tier one major contractors if they've signed fixed price deals you know last year or two years ago and and you know they've got that inflation risk you know we we we're protected against it now we can get caught by certain cost increases which we can absorb in our overheads and, and, and clearly we give ourselves a margin 
um, but but generally we we we're successful at negotiating inflation in in the way we price work. And I guess also if you are doing final pricing just before you start the job and your sh- your jobs are quite short term, yeah, it, inherently the exposure isn't isn't that great anyway. Yes, that's right. We it's it's on the longer running jobs where we have to be careful. Yeah. And in the frameworks, going back to frameworks, there's always an ability to um, either index link your your rates and prices or agree actual costs or revised rates going forward by transparent open book approach, whatever whatever the model is for that particular framework. And Mark, you've mentioned that you obviously have national coverage. You know, are there aspirations to, to look at international expansion? Uh, yes, there are. We've been talking about this for some time now, and um, we've been proceeding with our uh, development of opportunities in the rail sector for for the last sort of 12 months. Um, we identified rail as the most obvious exportable capability because it's niche and almost almost unique, not completely unique. But we do have some unique capabilities that we we believe are very applicable beyond just the UK's market. Um, pioneered here in the UK, which is the home of rail engineering, of course. Um, and um, we've been considering territories where that would be most applicable um, for for some time. And uh, we've we've made clear, in fact, we've put in writing in our statements that we are looking very closely at opportunities in Canada. Um, we are in an exclusive discussion with, you know, a major scheme in Canada, in Toronto, to join the team that's mobilising that program. Um, we would only go if it passes our commercial governance tests, if we can make the legals and tax arrangements work with our experience in, in that area, and if it's materially of sufficient scale to make it worth the effort, because, you know, if we're not careful, it'll be a, be a distraction. And we're in the process of doing that. I'm pretty confident that that's, that's the right thing to do. Over the next few months, we'll finalise those assessments and hopefully announce some uh, progress. And then you would ship rigs and and staff out there is that how it works yes we would ship rigs we've done this before and we've been piling in the Falkland Islands in the past before my time we've certainly worked in Europe since I've been here we often get asked to go and look at international well so European opportunities anyway and that's because we have a good reputation in the UK and we're such an open sort of contracting market in the UK a lot of people then go back to other regions or, or back to their parent companies and and know of us. And that's exactly how the Canada um, thing has come about through people we've worked with before. But yes, we'll take rigs overseas. That's relatively straightforward. We have a healthy list of people volunteering to go to Toronto. I don't know why that Maybe not be. the winter. <laughs> that's right. And um, and, we'd re- and we, we recruit um, and manage a local workforce. Um, we're quite heavily unionized in Canada. So that would be their model. Um, and we've been consulting with stakeholders around all of those topics now for several months. So we've got a pretty good idea of how we'd go about it. And then anywhere else apart from Canada and sort of international? I mean, does Australia work for you? So the most attractive regions are Canada, Northern Europe and Australia. Yes, probably in that order. The, the Australian market is very attractive. It's just a long way away. So I think what we'll we'll do is try to ensure we've made a success of Canada first for a short while um, you know give ourselves a confidence here and then and then go further afield if we can see it making a material impact to the um, you know to, to the future shape of the business. And then if we put international expansion to one side 
what are the other growth levers for, for the business? There's a long way we can go with organic growth and bolt-ons. Um, and notwithstanding what I said earlier about it's not easy to identify obvious bolt-ons, you know, every day of the week. There will be and there are some that are, you know, of interest. Uh, we And we would only focus on the high margin areas uh, that we uh, operate. The organic opportunities are still very strong, uh, though, for the business, even without bolt-on acquisitions. So I don't think there's any real difficulty envisaging a 200 million revenue group simply based on organic growth in all the markets that I've mentioned. Um, now, of course, the housing market will need to come back out of its dip and and um, back onto a sort of growth that we've, we, or at least the volumes that we've seen before. And we've got significant long-term opportunities to expand our work in infrastructure and international opportunities, as you say, on top of that. So infrastructure and housing would be the areas where we would expect the, the most um, obvious growth um, plus bolt-on acquisitions. And then the board's vision for, for the next five-year horizon, where would you like to see Van L at the end of the next five years? So we're focused on a set of medium-term financial targets, if I just talk about financial ones for a minute, because it, but it's not just about that. Um, um, so 15 to 20% return on capital, we're well on track for, for that. Margins between 6 uh, 6% to 7%, and then maybe you know, beyond seven ultimately um, of EBIT margins, low levels of leverage and year on year growth of, you know, single digit uh, growth percentages. Um, we think all of those are remain achievable in, in that five year horizon. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll hit the return on capital targets within two years. So the vision is a hundred million market cap business that's independent, remains independent, remains listed with um, a footprint in Canada as well as the UK, you know, is still the UK's market leader. But at the moment, we recognise we're we're subscale slightly. We're not on the, you know, we're not of huge interest to the range of investors that we feel we we would like to be. Our liquidity is is relatively low, um, and our market cap, whilst it's around 50 million, is is you know we we feel we need to be double that that valuation. Um, in order to you know generate the level of further interest to to keep making progress. That makes sense. Now, Mark, my regular listeners will know that I like to close with three questions. Should we take one at a time? Uh, your greatest inspiration and or mentor? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was lucky enough in my early years to work in Tarmac, which became Carillion. And although Carillion was associated with, with you know, uh, a massive sort of setback for the whole industry, ultimately, um, I worked for some brilliant people in the in the earlier years of my career. So my first my first managing director, a guy called Rowan Sharples, who saw the opportunity to move me into the rail sector, which which I think I benefited hugely from and I learned a massive amount from. Um, and one or two of his colleagues and the senior team, John McDonough was a CEO in those days. You know, these are people that I I look back and have a lot of respect for um so i would i would i would pick those those years as the most formative for me and then a book which is inspires you a book i i quite like sports and leadership crossover um stuff um so um there's a good book at the moment if anyone hasn't yet read it by jake humphreys um which is which is out um at the moment which is which is quite good about high performance they're going back much older book than that mark mccormick who's a sports agent 
wrote a really good book uh, called What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School, um, which if you haven't read it, is, is okay, it's 20 years old, but it's some really good stuff in there. And that's one that I, I always enjoy. No, indeed, indeed. And then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps? Well, um, I've got personal experience of this because my daughter is a, is a young civil engineer um, in Balfour Beatty, uh, following, not really following in my footsteps, she's setting her own path, but um, I'm very proud of the progress she's making. These are the sorts of things that I talk with her about quite often. She, she's fascinated by what I do. But I would say work hard, um, no matter whether you, you are the most academic or not, it doesn't matter, always work hard. And, and there's a big piece for me about being inquisitive and proactive um, and showing interest and, and, and the like. So, you know, ask questions, um, um, show interest and be proactive. Those are the things that I would say. And from a communications point of view, very important. So when, when Sophie, my daughter, was thinking about what to study at A-level, you know, maths and physics were obvious, but we then debated the third subject and she chose English, which I'm really pleased she did because communication skills are so important. Um, so don't ever underestimate the importance of importance of, of good communications and be succinct, not long winded, um, as I still tell some of my people now. Great sage advice, Mark. Mark, how can listeners get in touch with you? Easiest way, I don't do social media, Nick. So the easiest way would be email me, mark.cutler at vanl.co.uk. And don't forget, vanl is hyphenated. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much today. It's been a delight. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.